Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, August 8th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, we have Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. And this is part two of this discussion. We hope to have many more until we get through all 100 of them. Truthvids, greetings. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, hey, Bill. Thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, we, it took a little bit longer than expected uh, last week. We thought we'd do 10, ended up just being free. But um, I knew that first proof, it would be a really big one. I mean, there are so many topics to mention and to bring up to prove the 12 lost tribes migrations into Europe. And it's simply best to just cover them all to uh, leave no stone unturned, so to speak. Uh, you want to leave people with absolutely no doubt in their minds that, that it's true, and it is true. And once they examine all the evidence, it should become crystal clear, right? And, um, yeah, did you want to bring up anything on the the last third proof? Uh, there are a few things you wanted to mention, right? Well, well yes, I do. I want to touch on that third proof again, um, at least briefly, because I don't. We we spent so much time on the first proof that I don't think we did the third proof justice. I, I did have one email inquiry about um, why there was no transcript to this program, why nothing's in writing. But I can't prepare for this program. I can't put anything like this in writing. It is in writing already at Christiania. For for instance, that first proof that we discussed at length last week, it's already in writing in all of my um, German origins essays and, and Trojan Roman Judah and, and classical records in the Dorian and Danan Greeks and my essay on the Phoenicians. It's already in writing. And, and even though they could probably always be improved on, I don't have time. I, I can't stop to do that now. And it's the, the facts are there. All of the factual data that anyone needs, the historical data, is already there. I could always go read one more historian, like Pliny the Elder or someone else I hadn't read when I wrote those papers, and add a few facts to it, but the facts are there, so it's already in writing. So um, I see no reason to reduplicate that, that effort at this time, right? So I just had to say that. Um, so I'm sorry, but no, my discussions with you here, I, I don't plan to be in writing. This is meant to be conversational, in my opinion. I do have a few things to say about the third item that we discussed last week, because I don't know if we covered it justly, having spent so much time on, on the first one. So, so I want to present the attitude of Martin Luther on the subject. This is important to me because... Christians today, white Christians today, they're not taught history properly. And most white Christians have no idea how people thought about Christianity and society two or three or four or 500 years ago. Luther was not perfect from a Christian identity viewpoint, but he was certainly a Christian and he was certainly aware of the world around him. In his treatises, his essays, he wrote of the heathens often, 
meaning the other races and the other religions, which were, the, when you say heathen at that time, in reference to other religions, you were basically talking about people of other races. He wrote of the wars of the Europeans against the constantly invading Turks, which still had not ended in Luther's time. He wrote about Islam and all of the other non-Christian nations. In his time, which was the first half of the 16th century, the only Christian nations in the world were in Europe. And in chapter 13 of his essay on the Jews and their lies, Luther had exclaimed that it is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the Gentiles in all the world, in all the world, accepted without sword or coercion, with no temporal benefits accruing to them. In other words, nobody was going to reward them for accepting Jesus, right? Gladly and freely, a poor man of the Judeans as the true Messiah, one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, and persecuted without end. So where Luther said all the world had accepted Christ, he really meant all of the European or white world, because in Luther's time, they were the only Christians, and basically, they were all Christians. In 1543, there were no Asian, Latino, or Negro nations which were Christian. Christianity was forced on the other races, or it was exported to them under the Spanish, Portuguese, French, and British empires. This attitude of Luther's must have been relatively common knowledge at that time, because he expressed it so casually he expressed it as a matter of fact. So it reflects the normal mode of thought in 1543 when he wrote that essay. And he did not expect it to shock or surprise his readers. So Luther's world was clearly the white world. And, and, yeah, and, and um, so, sorry, on. I thought you were going to say something else. No, uh, go yeah, on. And, um, Europe was considered Christendom. It was the nation known as Christianity, or, or a white person was considered Christian, and non-whites were never considered Christian. Um, you know, all, all these Turks, they never came in and converted. They try, just tried to come in and destroy it all, right? Well, well right. The, the Turks were fighting, um, and, and Islam in general, right? Because the Turks... First, the Arabs were invading Europe and trying to destroy it. The Arabs were trying to take Europe and make it into another Islamic Arab, an, an Arabian Republic. It, it, it tried to conquer Europe, and it succeeded in southern Spain, or I should say southern Iberia, right? Because it's southern Spain and Portugal. It was actually the lower two-thirds of the Iberian Peninsula, and they actually also ruled over Sicily and parts of southern Italy at various times. And, and when the Turks began to invade, 
they found their they found allies in the Arabs, even though Arabs and Turks didn't always get along and, and they sometimes fought. When the Turks conquered the lands that the Arabs had conquered, they found allies of the same Islamic religion, basically. So it, it was Turks and Arabs for a long time united against white Christian Europe who tried to invade and destroy white Christian Europe. And all the way to the 1680s were the Turks trying to do that. They had Vienna under siege as late as the 1680s. Now, various European countries rose up at various times in order to fight against the Turks. At first, it was the Serbs, and then it was the Poles, and the Lithuanians, and, and then it was the um, Venice, the Venetians had fought with the Turks at sea in the Mediterranean for, for many, many decades. So, so Charles Martel had, had stopped the Arab invasion of France. They tried to conquer France in, in um, the 8th century, I believe. So, so if it weren't for um, diverse princes and mostly Christian princes rising up to defend Europe at various times, we would all be flying carpets today. The, the Crusades are seen as today as efforts of European aggression against the Turks and the Arabs. That's a complete mischaracterization by the Jewish media. And, and Jewish academics, the Crusades were defensive efforts. They were trying to take back lands that were Christian before the Turks and the Arabs conquered those lands. They belonged to the Romans and the Byzantine Greeks, and they were Christian lands. So the Crusades were a defensive effort. They were not really an offensive effort. Even though sometimes they were fought for the wrong reasons, like the greed of the popes or whatever, they were defensive. They were trying to gain back lands that were held by Christendom. And, and in the end, they failed. They never regained those lands. But they did manage to defend Europe and to ultimately keep the Turks out of Europe. And even in um, some of the old writing, right, they would identify like gypsies and Christians, even though they might look the same. Um, I believe it was Rudolf Kipling. He wrote, you know, stories like that. And many other writers, it was the same thing. There was a clear distinction between the Christian woman and the gypsy woman, right? Well, well right. And, and into the 20th century, into the opening decades of the 20th century, because that's when Rudyard Kipling wrote. And I love Kipling, but he wasn't quite perfect either. He had a lot of altruism and empathy for the non-white races, but he still understood racial distinctions quite clearly in the 1930s. And, and he wrote the, um, the White Man's Burden around the time of the Spanish-American Wars, I, I believe in the very closing years of the 19th century. He may have written that around 1898, 1899, The White Man's Burden. And he, he made a clear distinction between the white Christian races and, and, and the other races. And he portrayed the white man's burden as being that of um, 
carrying the other races and and in specific case the philippines into um a state of civilization that's the overall tone of the white man's burden but he also wrote that they would hate the white man for that so kipling was practically po prophetic in, in that regard the white man's burden is in some ways prophetic because kipling knew that it wasn't going to turn out well that the other races would ultimately hate the white man and they do we see that before our eyes today so yeah yeah all the time we we help them uh you know we give them you know aid and and help build their civilization and as you said they still just hate us so so there really is no point in helping them even though you know yahweh commanded us not to you know they right. always um hate us and, and another thing um i think it's worth mentioning in regards to the turkish invasions is that there was always jews in our nations who were essentially betraying us who were inviting them in they were doing trade they were arming them they were militarizing them and you know there's even stories of them opening the gates to let them into uh the cities but they were behind it all the the muslims and arabs weren't wouldn't have been able to do it without the jews essentially controlling them and swarming them into our nations right oh absolutely that there's a, an untold aspect of history it it's you can um obtain a sketch of it by reading medieval literature but it's very clear that the jews jewish um jewish merchants and and i, I want to call them princes but they were sort of pseudo princes in in arabia they had basically invented islam so that they could militantize arabs and and organize them and gather them against the byzantine empire because jews were when the byzantine empire accepted christianity jews were practically excluded from it and they just wanted to destroy it right from the 6th century so maybe even a little earlier so the jews organized islam and and that's why and and that's how in my opinion you you had these arabs became islamic and and they're invading white christian europe and as soon as they are beaten off or stopped in their progress all of a sudden you had these turkic tribes from the far east and they're also islamic and and they're doing the same thing they're invading the byzantine empire from the east and and they actually um the arab aggression in europe it didn't stop with the arab defeat in france by charles martel because they had kept trying to invade and conquer italy and sicily um pirating and and invading the coasts of france that they didn't really ever stop but for the most part they were slowed down and and mired down they made very little progress they probably made better progress looting women from the shores of western europe and bringing them into africa as slaves which they did for many hundreds of years whites were slaves in africa long before any negro was a slave in america so the turks 
became the focus of Jewish support in wars against the Byzantines. And even though it's difficult to prove, it's easy to prove that Jews assisted the Turks. It's difficult to prove that Jews were behind organizing them and converting them to Islam so that they could make a potent militant force, military force out of them. And, and that's what happened. And the Turks became a tool in the hands of Jewry that, that persisted for 700 years in its wars against Europe. Yeah. And then um, leading on into the <coughs> next proof, uh, sorry? Well, well right. It, it was the um, colonial expansion. When, when the Turks and, and the Arabs were, for the most part, defeated, for the most part, I mean, the wars quite weren't over yet, but for the most part, it was clear that the Europeans were militarily superior to Turks and Arabs. And that's when the colonial period began. We're under those empires that began to spread Christianity and actually spread their own people over the entire world. Yeah, and the Arabs, Turks, and all the other races, they've never been able to do that. The only reason, um, you know, they invaded Europe was just for looting, pillaging, and, you know, raping, essentially. They were able to, you know, gather up a big horde and send them in, but they were never able to go build some ships, go sail over to this island or, or wherever and set up colonies. It was never for that purpose. Only the white race has ever really, truly been able to do that, right? Well, well right. Only the white race has been able to establish its own race, culture, and civilization successfully in lands that were previously barren or sparsely inhabited. And the Arabs were never able to do that. They never even tried to do that. They only tried to um, destroy and occupy areas that whites had already occupied, where whites already had civilization. And it's the same with the Turks. The Turks invaded um, the remnants of white society in um, Mesopotamia that the Arabs had already conquered in the 10th or 11th centuries AD. The Arabs had already conquered and, and, and converted to Islam all of Mesopotamia. And did Mesopotamia improve in those years, in those centuries? Mesopotamia was at one time the pinnacle of civilization, just like Egypt. And the Arabs had destroyed Byzantine Egypt, Roman Egypt. And that was at one time a pinnacle of civilization. Did those areas improve under Islam, under the Arabs? No, they didn't. They didn't advance at all. In fact, they began a decline in, in their civilization. And, and we hear in... Um, we hear in our schools today that the Arabs invented algebra or the Arabs invented this or that and they had culture and civilization and they did this and that. And, and that's all wrong. That's all a deception and a lie. 
The ancient Greeks invented algebra. The ancient Greeks had geometry. You can't have algebra without geometry. The ancient Greeks debated the um, end value of pi, which they could never arrive at. Well, that's because pi has no end value. Pi is the Greek letter that, in mathematics, it describes the ratio of a circle to its diameter, is basically what pi describes, right? So it's 3.1415927, something like that. But you can't calculate it. It, it because it keeps going. It doesn't end. It's it's an infinite number, right? You can never round out that decimal without losing a little bit. So it, if I'm explaining that proficiently, it, it's the Greeks had all of these concepts. They had algebra. We, in our medieval European ignorance had adopted Arabic terms to describe some mathematic concepts that the Greeks already described because the Arabs had preserved vestiges of that Greek knowledge after they conquered all the lands that were inhabited and developed and civilized by Greeks. So the Arabs basically took over those schools and those libraries. And because they had the books that the white Greeks had developed and written, they were seen as the bearers of these things. And, and Jewish propaganda makes them the inventors. When they weren't the inventors, whites were the inventors. So the Arabs basically appropriated Greek culture and claimed it as their own. That's exactly what they did. They had no culture of their own. And ever since they took over those Greek lands, those formerly Byzantine lands, portions of the former Byzantine Empire, and that includes um, Mesopotamia, the Levant, all of North Africa, Egypt, um, Libya. Well, where have those nations improved? They haven't been shining lights, not for the last 800 years, 900 years, or better. No, Those they nations... just became hellholes, right? Yeah, and, they all became and, you know, hellholes. And, you know, um, the Jews always make up uh, all, all types of inventions that allegedly this race invented, like the gunpowder in China and, um, you, you know, all, all kind of stuff like that. They, they just make it up to try and equalize them to the achievements whites have made. Right. Right, precisely. And, and all of those things were developed by whites. So should we um, just go over a few of the prophecies um, so people, you know, know them, that Jacob's seed would spread across the whole world? I believe it starts in Genesis when uh, Yahweh is making promises to Abraham, which is passed on to Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and it's Genesis 28. And thy seed, thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And then later on, um, when things start to go bad in the kingdom after it's split, uh, Isaiah starts 
even though it's looking dark and we're about to be deported, Isaiah still makes a bold statement that he shall cause them to come off of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. And that's Isaiah 27. So clearly the prophecies hadn't all been fulfilled in just the kingdom of, you know, the north and south kingdom, kingdom of Israel, kingdom of Judea, or even when it was together under David and Solomon, these prophecies still had to be fulfilled to cover the whole world, right? And then just one more, Amos then declares that Yahweh will make a full end to all nations and that Israel would spread everywhere that's actually, so in other words the other white adamic nations would be replaced by israel um so yeah where, where would you like to start on all this phil well i'm sorry that last citation that you provided is not amos it's actually jeremiah it's in jeremiah oh, chapter 30 and in jeremiah chapter 46 and and i'll read it from jeremiah chapter 30 verse 11 for i am with thee now the children of israel were already scattered they were already taken off into um, Babylonian captivity. They were already taken off into Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians had taken all the Israelites into captivity, except for the stragglers, right? It, it didn't ever get every single one, except for the stragglers and those who managed to, to escape and avoid capture. There's always those people. So, so the Assyrians took all Israel into captivity, except the inhabitants of Jerusalem which means all the rest of Judah was taken into Assyrian captivity. And the Babylonians had already taken Judah into captivity by the time Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah chapter 46. And because Jeremiah is, parts of the book of Jeremiah are demonstrably out of order, probably Jeremiah chapter 30 as well. And, and in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, which hasn't quite happened yet, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure. And that's the entire point of the, the scattering and gathering in Christ of the children of Israel. So in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6, as you just cited, and Isaiah is writing, as the Assyrians are taking Israelites into captivity, that's when Isaiah is writing. And Isaiah writes, he shall cause them to come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. And Paul of Tarsus evokes that language in many places in his epistles. And for instance, in Colossians chapter one, verse six, speaking of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. Now there was no gospel in China. There was no gospel in India. There was no gospel in Africa. Paul never wrote an epistle to any tribe of Africa or, or Egypt or any of those other places because they weren't part of Paul's world. Paul's speaking about the Greek and Roman world, which is the world to people of his time, which has come unto you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit, as also in you. So Paul is evoking the language of Isaiah, chapter 27. And if you go to Romans chapter four, 
Paul speaks about Abraham, our forefather, to the Romans, because, as he also proves in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 1, he understood that the Romans had descended from a portion of the ancient Israelites. Actually, Israelites who left Egypt, who didn't go on the exodus with Moses. And that is demonstrable. So it's demonstrable both in the Bible and in history. So Paul is evoking that language. And in Romans chapter 4, he explains how the children of Abraham through Jacob Israel had already become many nations. And it's to those nations that the promises are assured, that the inheritance is assured in Christ. And, and that's the entire gist of what he says in Romans chapter 4. An overview of, of, of all of these things in the scripture, as we spoke last in our first part of, of this about the prophets, proves beyond doubt that the white European nations are indeed the scattered children of Israel. There are yeah, many and, other um, prophecies. As we already went through a little bit in part one, uh, you know, it starts off with the, um, you know, Jacob, sorry, Joseph goes down to Egypt and eventually his other brothers come down and, you know, Jacob, and then they multiply. And then in the Exodus already there, some start to spread into Greece. So we're already starting to see this spreading. And then when they went into the kingdom set up, you know, the 12 tribes in the land of Palestine, Israel, again, the Phoenicians and all that, but it continued afterwards. Uh, there is some evidence that um, we dispersed a little bit into the east, right? But that didn't last long amongst the other nations and, and even going into, say, India and China. But those Israelites would always have intermixed and destroyed themselves, essentially, right? Well, well right. I mean, there were evidently Scythians who entered China and intermixed ultimately with the yellow people of Asia, and, and they basically did destroy themselves. And they never really, even though that, that they had um, brought certain of their inventions and civilization into Asia, they destroyed themselves and they never really lifted China or, or the rest of Asia to the, to the um, state of civilization attained in Europe. So that's why what, when we go into China in the later medieval period, they, they seem to have things that Europeans also had. Um, shipping and multi-story buildings and things like that. But those things evidently came to them through these earlier Scythian and, and other people of, of Europe who were trading the silk routes with, with the Orient for hundreds and hundreds of years, probably even before the rise of the Persian Empire, where the Persians trading with, with the Chinese going into China and, and introducing European culture into China while taking goods that they sought after out of China. So this, the, the trade routes are ancient and, and Alexander made it almost to China. <laughs> so that this, these cultural exchanges have been going on for 
thousands of years before the rise of modern globalism. Globalism is a very, very ancient endeavor of the merchants. It's not new. Globalism's been around forever. Yeah, and every white nation that became an empire has always paid for it because they've always sought to control all these non-white nations and it's caused their doom, their uh, imploding and destructions. And then the merchants just move on to the next white nation, right? Well, the children of Israel were promised to possess the gates of their enemies. And, and, the, and, and that was a promise given to Abraham. And they have always been, the Israelites, ever since the, the, the time of the Exodus, had the Israelites been the chief sailors of, of the world. And that there were times when other nations tried to achieve that. But the, the first advent of that is the Phoenicians. And, and they were Israelites who settled Western Europe. And, and northern Africa and controlled the Mediterranean and the routes to the Atlantic for for um for well over a thousand years before the Romans defeated them in the Punic Wars, before they defeated the Carthaginians in the Punic Wars. And then later on you had the, the various the succession of the various navies of, of European nations until the English and now the Americans control the seas and are overwhelmingly the most powerful nations on the seas. So Israelites have always possessed the gates of their nations because if you control the seas, you control what goes in and out of all the ports. And, and that was the key to the British Empire, right? But I'm getting ahead of myself. These yeah. Israelites would have become nations and companies of nations. And there were four um, key peoples, let's say, at the time of Christ. The Phoenicians in the West, because they still inhabited all of Western Europe. The, the, um, the Galatahi or Scythians to the north and the Romans and the Parthians were in control of the whole white world of that time. And all four of those groups came from the ancient children of Israel. Now, there were other nations in Europe that did not come from the Israelites, like the Ionian Greeks and the, the Persians themselves and, and the Etruscans and, and other peoples who, the, the Tartesians of Spain, that the um, earliest inhabitants of Greek, the, the Pulaski and, and people like that, they still had remnants of their people, especially the Ionians, right? At the time of Christ, there were still remnants of those Jephethite or Shemite tribes that were not Israelites in diverse places. And probably the most notable among them were the, the, the Athenians, who were Ionian Greeks. Um, Phokian or Ionian Greeks had settled southern France. They were still there at the time of Christ. So not every European is an Israelite. 
And we could go to other places as well and, and find people that are white Europeans that, are, that didn't descend directly from the Israelites, but did descend from one or another of the Genesis 10 nations, which were all demonstrably white. We could demonstrate that they were all white originally. They're not all white today because they were overrun, but they were all white originally. So by the time of Christ, these four primary groups of people, the Parthians, who came from the Assyrian captivities, and they were Israelites, the Scythians and Galatahi, Galatians, or Gauls, who came from the Assyrian captivities, and they were Israelites, the Phoenicians, or the Proto-Celts of the West, who came from the kingdom of Israel and had sailed into colonized Western Europe and North Africa. They were Israelites primarily. And, and then you had the, um, the Romans who descended from the Trojans who had come from Egypt and they were Israelites primarily. And, and then you had the Dorian Greeks who are the rest of the Greeks, the Spartans, the Corinthians. They're not Ionians, they're Dorians. They came from Palestine. Those people controlled And the Macedonian Greeks had descended primarily from Dorian and Danan Greeks. And the Macedonian Greeks controlled the, the, the known world before the Romans did. So those people all descended from the Israelites. And the promises to Abraham were fulfilled in those groups by the time of Christ. Yeah, so that's just amazing when when you look at the you know the past events, the battles, the empires that rose. When you actually have a biblical view and you understand these prophecies, how rapidly and fast it happened. How um, Alexander, you know, he rallied the Macedonians and all the surrounding Greek states, and in just a matter of ten years, he he had uh, conquered the whole of the East, swept down into Egypt, you know, North Africa, and that essentially was fulfilling the prophecies that, um, you know, the Israelites would replace all these nations. Uh, it just happened so fast. But when when you understand and you look at the battles, how, um, you know, it could have gone either way. You know, some people say he was really lucky, Alexander. But when you realize that Yahweh was with him because these prophecies had to be fulfilled. And then, you know, on the flip side, when you look at the Romans, how they were struggling with the goals, you know, they had some victories. And then Caesar, very rapidly, he um, fully conquered Spain and then took the whole of Gaul very, very quickly. Again, in just a few years, it just happened so rapidly. And again, you know, whether you like Alexander and Caesar or you hate them, you know, those prophecies had to be fulfilled. Someone had to do it to fulfill the words of Yahweh. And as you just said, the promises made to Abraham, right? Well, well, right, absolutely. That that would pave the way for the children of Israel to keep those lands so that they wouldn't be taken from them again. And, and also to fulfill other prophecies, such as the beasts that would rule over the children of Israel because they were pagan empires. And even the Catholic Church was basically a pagan empire. It's not Christian by any means. Those beasts were pagan empires. And, and that they're described in the Revelation as well as in the prophecies of Daniel. And, and that the prophecies of Daniel um, prove to us where the children of Israel were simply 
when we examine the fulfillment of those prophecies. And, and they're very clearly describing the, the succession of empires from the Babylonian to the, to, to the Persian, to the Greek, to the Roman. Once we understand that, we, we know with all certainty where the children of Israel were. And then Paul of Tarsus comes along and with his language in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, in Romans chapters 1 and 4, with his language, we know with all certainty that our inter interpretation of, the, of those prophecies is correct. And then we get to the revelation of Christ, which is entirely Eurocentric. Why is the revelation Eurocentric? And once we realize that it is Eurocentric, then we realize that the letters of Paul are true and the prophecies of Daniel also must be true. It, it's, it's a, um, it, it's a, a building built one solid block upon another once you understand Christian identity. Yeah. Um, do you want to go over a little bit of the world colonies, you know, the empires, uh, it wasn't just Britain, you know, initially all of Europe had their own colonies, but if you just look at a world colonial, colonial empires map of say 1900, the whole world is controlled by essentially European nations. You can just see it everywhere. Um, not just, you know, Europe, Russia, America, but initially Mexico that was settled by Spain and Portuguese. It had, a vast white population, all of South America was initially settled by them. Uh, pretty much all of Africa was controlled, uh, all of the West by France, uh, South Africa by the Boers, and you know, every country in Europe had some kind of a colony somewhere. Uh, all of India was basically in the pocket of uh, the British Empire. A lot of the Middle East was largely settled and controlled by us. and. Even the Dutch Empire, the Indonesia, what we now call the Philippines and all that, that was all controlled by Holland, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and even China, there were colonies, right? Is it called Shanghai, I believe? But essentially the whole world was at one point settled by whites and no other race has ever done that. So how can any other race be the children of Israel? Well, well right, and that facilitated that the... the other prophecies where Christ said constantly that in, 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 um, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, that the children of Israel would be spread to the north, east, south, and west, that they would be regathered at the end times from the north, east, south, and west. Um, there were prophecies that the children of Israel would dwell in the north and, and in the isles, the coastlands, of, especially of the west. But, but there are also prophecies that say they will be gathered in the end times from all four points of the globe. So we have to imagine a race that spread itself out to all four points of the globe. And even before they were called to, to Christ, the children of Israel had done that to a great extent. So it, if we look at the period of colonization, it, it had a, a good side and a bad side. The good side is that it did 
spread our race out around the entire globe. And I'm going to call it a globe for, for our purposes here, right? And, and Australia, New Zealand, they, they were white colonies where they were barren lands inhabited by a sparse, sparsely inhabited by non-white savage, I, I hate to call them people, I'll just call them non-white savages before whites got there. So whites settled there and, and built um, glorious civilizations, havens in, in the desert. In, in Australia was, wow, a horribly barren and, and dangerous place to be with all of its odd and, and dangerous life forms that European men had never encountered before. And all of its um, perils, well, well and, and its horrible climate and, and the entire interior of Australia is desert. It, it, it would be the last place you'd think that a blooming civilization could be built, yet white men did that in Australia. And they did it in New Zealand. And, and the Dutch did it in South Africa. So, yeah, we did that. And no other nation could do that. And when the Dutch inhabited South Africa, there were no black tribes there. There were some Bushmen, and, and it was very sparsely inhabited until the English brought the African blacks from Central Africa to use for cheap labor and as a wedge against the Dutch. The English wanted to take over the um, the the Boerland, the, the South Africans. They wanted to destroy the Boers and take the mines and the gold and the diamonds for themselves. So they used the, the blacks to do that. They brought them south to do that. So that, that was English treachery that brought large numbers of blacks to South Africa. So far as I can recall, so far as I know. So yeah, and North oh, America, North America, you always had this bad side of colonialism, which was driven by commerce. Now, the Boers did not settle South Africa for commerce, that they wanted a land of their own, that they, I believe there was a religious difference. I'm, I'm not, I might be corrected on this that originally drove the first Dutch to South Africa. I, I think it may have been for religious purposes, actually, but it was definitely what brought the first Englishmen to New England and, and to other places in America was a, a, um, a need to be separate religiously from, from the Anglican church. The Puritans came to New England for good or bad, that they established because they've always been very liberal and, and far, too, far too altruistic. But for good or bad, they established New England for religious reasons originally. And Pennsylvania was founded as a Christian colony for mostly religious reasons, whereas Virginia and North and South Carolina were founded for commercial reasons and that's the bad side the wicked side of colonialization was that commerce was behind a lot of it and the colonies created abroad 
only served the needs of English commerce or Spanish commerce or Portuguese commerce, that the Spanish and Portuguese had remained um, Roman Catholic and they were universalist and they felt that they had to convert all of the native savages to Christianity, which they undertook by force throughout Mexico and South America. And that wasn't a good idea. That's, that ultimately resulted in the racial destruction of those colonies. The French had the same idea, to convert the Indians to Catholicism. And, and that has negative effects on white society. So that element was always there in colonialization, especially with the, the Catholics in Europe. So it had its bad sides, but it also had its good sides and helped white Europeans to establish great nations all over the world, which no other race had ever done. And that fulfilled all of these prophecies of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Yeah. Um, I just think it's worth mentioning um, a lot of people don't realize how white, um, you know, countries like Cuba, Mexico, and, you know, Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, they used to have vast white populations. But because there were so many Jews in, you know, those, the southern part of America and middle, a lot more than the north, it fell a lot quicker than, you know, the north. Um, I believe Mexico at one point, just before the 1900s, it had a 40% white population. And very quickly, it had um, like a mini Bolshevik revolution type thing where the whites were massacred and they fled up to the north. But it just shows you that these places, they weren't always these mixed bastards. You know, if you think of a Mexican, you just assume they were always like that. But that wasn't true. It, and it's not just South Africa that's being overrun. All these places went through the same thing. Uh, they, they were just, it happened a lot earlier. And, you know, the, the same thing's happening to us now, right? Well, well right. And and that that's that was the entire point of my discussion in, in that series of podcasts I had done on the Arab question, which I, I was um, pointing out to you earlier, had actually driven off a lot of my listeners. Stop listening after I did that, because I guess they <laughs> they, they all have their um that their pet Mexican or, or their pet South American. I I don't know. I don't get it. But but the um the the presence of a huge number an extraordinarily large number of Jews in the Spanish and Portuguese settlements of South America was mostly out of the fact that the Inquisition was going on in Europe at the time that Spaniards and Portuguese were settling in South America, and Jews were fleeing to the New World expecting to build a utopia of their own in South America. They expected that, that they had looked forward to escaping the, the um, powers of the Roman Pope. They thought they could do that in South America. And so many Jews ended up in Havana that at one point the Spanish Bishop of Havana complained that they were about to lose Havana as a Christian city. He wrote back to the Spanish king with that complaint. 
And that was in the um, middle of the 1500s, I believe, the middle of the 16th century, when he did that, because he was upset about the number of Jews coming on, on the um, ships of the conquistadors, on, on the ships of the settlers. That the, um, there were a large, there was a large Jewish population in diverse places in Brazil and, and in Mexico. And eventually those Jews, just like they do today, they became the, the, um, the, the beaters of drums encouraging race mixing among the Spaniards and the Indians. And they themselves had, had assimilated themselves into a lot of those native populations by mixing with them. So a lot more of these Mexicans and South Americans than we may think, and, and Cubans and Puerto Ricans are actually also mixed with uh, Jewish and Arab blood, Canaanite blood from the Mediterranean. Yeah, and look at them now. They're hell holes, right? I mean, Mexico is one of the darkest places you can possibly go, right? Uh, wh where was this paradise that they was <laughs> that they hoped to build? What happened, right? Well, well, precisely. And and now because they've become such hell holes that these last fifty years they've pushed harder and harder to come into North America to come into the kingdom of heaven that they've been beating yeah, I mean, their when way, you want to flee from your it. own race that tells you something right right yeah that should there are other factors involved in that but but it's um international corporations controlled by jews that that are behind those other factors the farmland being taken off of the mexicans and turned over to corporations has driven a lot of mexicans here yeah, and the only reason there's, as we said, you know, with China and, and et cetera, it's the same thing in those countries. The only reason that they have corporations or some degree of civilization is because they're being used to produce something to export it to white nations. But if we cut them off, you know, they would decline even worse, even worse how I was, right? Well, absolutely. It was entirely um, Western money and... Western technology, and when I say Western, I mean white Christian money and technology, which had industrialized Japan in the 18th century and industrialized China in, in the late 20th and, and now the 21st centuries. We did that. Whites did that with international Jewish international banks and, and corporations behind them. But whites did that. We industrialized those nations. If you look at all the early corporations in Japan, they had um, Western names. Japan Victor Corporation was, a, was an offshoot of RCA Victor. Um, Nippon Telephone and Telegraph was an offshoot of AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph. And, and there's a lot of others besides that the Rockefeller corporations and the Rockefeller banks in Japan starting um, electronics corporations and, and military armaments companies and, and the Rothschilds helped militarize Japan to use it as a, um, as a wedge against Russia in, in their endeavor to defeat Russia. 
they built up Japan militarily so that the Japanese could defeat Russia in the, in the Russo-Japanese wars in the opening decade of the 20th century. They did that. The Jewish bankers, the international bankers and corporations built Japan and they built China and they built every other Southeast nation into an industrial nation so that they could have their goods made cheaply and imported into white countries. There's other benefits yeah, to that also. Yeah, they could undermine everyone in white nations and, and fully gain control. Right. In, in China, there's no OSHA, that there's no um, pollution controls, that there's a whole lot of um, legal barriers here in, in the United States to exploiting um, workers and polluting the environment that don't exist in China and in Southeast Asia. They could pollute all they want. They could um, run their workers into the ground. All those protections don't exist. The only thing those Asians care about is profit. <laughs> yeah. All right. Do, do you want to move, move on to the next point, or do you have anything else to say? Well, I think we probably um, covered point four sufficiently. I hope. Yeah. All right. So uh, five to be known as sons of the living God, Christians. Um, this is the prophecy in Hosea, uh, Hosea that the people wouldn't start calling themselves Jews, that the children of Israel would have a new name and that they would name themselves after the name that Yahweh himself would come down and give to them. Right. You, you can explain it a lot better than me, but Christ came down and he was the Messiah. He called himself the Christ. And then very shortly after, there are people calling themselves Christians. And Ian means people, the people of Christ. Right. Well, well right. Yahweh said throughout Isaiah that he would come. He would come and he would be their redeemer. I am your redeemer over and over again. He, he tells us that in Isaiah. And its prophecies of the Messiah are in practically um, all of the books, or at least most of the books of the prophets. And, and they're explicit in places such as Daniel chapter 9, um, Jeremiah chapter 30. There's an explicit prophet prophecy of the New Covenant in, in the closing chapters of Ezekiel, that there's prophecies, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's also um, fulfilled in Christ. In Isaiah chapter 65, we read, Behold, and this is from verse 14, Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit. And this is an address to um, Israel and Judah that they're going to be punished for their sins, but God's servants. Now, Israel is Yahweh's servant, and that's explicit in Isaiah. But here he's speaking of in, in a slightly different context, he's addressing Israel and saying that those that serve him in Israel will have joy. 
but the sinners will continue to have sorrow of heart and, and vexation of spirit. And then in verse 15, it says, and you shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen. And in Isaiah chapter 65, in the context in, in which it speaks, it's speaking of the Judah and Israel, that those names would be left as a curse, because that's who's being addressed. And in verse 9, it says, And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. So an element of the people are going to be punished, and the names are going to be left as a curse unto that seed that's going to be brought out of Jacob that will in have his inheritance. And, and they are the people that remained that were not being cursed of, of the ancient Israelites. And it says, And you shall leave your name for a curse unto my chosen, for Yahweh God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. So those of Israel who choose to serve God would be called by another name that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten. In other words, the Israelites would forget all of the troubles that they had in Israel, ancient Israel and ancient Judah. And because they are hid from mine eyes, meaning those former troubles, that he would have servants who were a seed out of Jacob, and all of those um, sinful Israelites, the, the Israelites who race mixed, the Israelites who engaged in Baal worship, they would ultimately be punished for their deeds. So we see that the names would be left as a curse. And, and what greater curse have we had throughout history than the term Jew? which even though Jew is not the same as Judah, the word Jew did come from the name Judah. <laughs> and that's a curse to this very day. And, and if you don't believe it's a curse to this very day, just stand in the streets of New York and call a Jew a Jew. And you'll find out it's a curse. <laughs> yeah, you'll get 10 years in prison. Right? Well, well, yeah, you'll be dragged off to jail. You will be dragged off to jail, I guarantee it. You start calling Jews Jews on the streets of New York and, and talking about some of the things that Jews do. Uh, there's, I have videos of people doing that that were, dra that were dragged off to jail. So that there's a video available on, on YouTube um, today that, that some, some clown, and, and I think he may have been a Jew, I'm not sure, but he, he dressed up as Elmo, the Sesame Street character, and started standing in, in a park in New York City and calling out Jews for all the pornography and everything that Jews do. And they, that they came and arrested him. <laughs> so, yeah, you're going to go to jail. And anyway, that, that he will call himself by another name that he himself will name. And... and 
we see that fulfilled in Christ. And the apostles of Christ started calling that the um, the former ancient, the, the seed of Israel, the, the people of the lost 12 tribes that they converted to Christ, they started calling them Christians. And, and the names Israel and, and Judah, when Europe turned to Christianity, those names Israel and Judah, and especially Judah and, and the term Jew, were looked down upon. They were despised. They did become curses. And we have forgot all about our past, right? It has happened. Nobody remembers all the horrible things, like the Assyria deportation and, you know, all the, I'm sure it was uh, terrible for our ancestors, all the suffering. Um, well, yeah, yeah, shall I just read the uh, Hosea one ten? Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. So, so once again, he's saying, you know, we're going to be in the millions. We're going to spread out and grow, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it is said unto them, you are not my people. There it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God. And as Yahweh mocked the pagan gods as being bits of stone and wood, the only living God would be Christ who came down as a living, breathing man, right? So he is the living God, the Christ. And, and Christians, when they came to Christianity, always considered themselves to be children of God. That's always been a part of Christian culture. Where it was said unto them that ye are not my people, after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, if you look in the books of the prophets, it was said unto them, ye are not my people. And they were being put off in punishment and denied by God. But he also promised at the same time that they would be reconciled to him. So when you have Paul of Tarsus going to these nations of Europe, he's preaching, as he himself called it on many occasions, the gospel of reconciliation. So if Yahweh puts off his people and says, you're not my people, but promises them reconciliation, and then Christ comes along, and the apostles of Christ offer these people of Europe reconciliation. They must be the same people, because in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. Peter, in his first epistle, cited that very prophecy. And it's exactly what Peter meant. Peter understood it where he had called the, and, and he's speaking to Christians. When Peter had written his first epistle, if you read the very beginning of it, you will see that um, he's addressing Christian assemblies in Anatolia which is modern-day Turkey, but which, is, which at one time was all um, Greek and Scythian. It was a, the Galatians were Scythians. It was all, for the most part, inhabited by Greeks and Scythians, um, Macedonian Greeks, Dorian Greeks, and, and, of course, Romans and Scythians. And they are the people whom these assemblies that Peter had described in the opening salutation of his epistle, they are the people who had 
inhabited those places. He named Pontus, which was inhabited by Scythians and Romans. It was ruled by Rome. Galatia, which was inhabited by the Galatahi, by Scythians, and also some Greeks and Romans. Cappadocia, Asia. Now, in the Roman world, Asia was the province of southwesternmost Anatolia, the part that bordered the Aegean Sea that was ancient Caria. And Asia was all um, Greek and Phoenician. And Bithynia, which was Greek and Scythian. And all of these, in all of these places, Paul of Tarsus had founded assemblies, perhaps with the exception of Bithynia, but I can't be entirely sure that Paul um, wasn't there either because he traveled through Anatolia on foot on several occasions. So then addressing these people, and they're also the same places where you find the seven churches of the Revelation. Addressing these people, Peter is not talking to Jews. He's talking to Christians. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, But you are a chosen genos. And it's translated as generation. But the word genos means race. It essentially and basically means race. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, or ethnos. Now it's singular there, ethnos. Nation, not nations. And that's because all of these people that Peter addressed, even though some of them may have been Romans, and some of them may have been Greeks, and some of them may have been Scythians, they all ultimately descended from one nation, which was the ancient children of Israel. How could Peter say such a thing? He wasn't trying to make a new nation out of a bunch of Christians of diverse races. That's not what Peter was doing because he called them a chosen race in the singular. So chosen race and holy nation. And then where it says peculiar people, which is a laos in Greek, and that's also singular. So they are all one peculiar or distinct people that you should bring forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And all through the prophecy of Isaiah, especially those later chapters, the 40s, 50s, you see the children of Israel describe the people that were sent into captivity, described as sitting in darkness but promised that they would be called out of darkness. So Peter is referring to those prophecies in Isaiah of the children of Israel, that you should be, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness. Only the children of Israel were promised in the prophets to be called out of the darkness which they were sent into has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people because of what you just read from Hosea. Ye are not my people, but are now the people of God, which you have just read in Hosea, in the prophecy 
that you would be called not my people, but where it is said to you that you are not my people, there you shall be called the sons of the living God. So Peter is writing in reference to this people inhabiting a part of what would become Christian Europe, because all of Anatolia was part of Christian Europe before the invasions of the Turks, before the 9th century, 10th century AD. It was all part of Christian Europe. So where it was said to them that they were not his people, in the words of the prophets, there it would be said to them that they would be the sons of the living God. And that's what Peter's saying here. And he's saying it 800 years after Hosea wrote those words. It's 800 years between the time Hosea wrote those words and the time that Peter is making this explanation of the fulfillment of those words. That's what he's doing here. And then he says, which had not obtained mercy. Who required mercy? Only the children of Israel required mercy because they had been sent into captivity and they were being punished for their sins. But have now obtained mercy. And that mercy was promised to those same children of Israel in those same Old Testament prophets. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 30, in Jeremiah chapter 31, and it's the only prophecy, direct prophecy of mercy found in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 31, I'm going to um, have it here in a second. <sighs> Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword, that's the people that survived the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. When Israel, when the Israelites were taken off into captivity, Yahweh God describes that as a period of rest. And that's when they developed into many tribes and that were later called the Germanic tribes. And some of them went to the east, but most of them went into Europe to become the Germanic people and joined the Israelites who had settled Europe much earlier which were the Trojans, the Dorian Greeks, the Danning Greeks, the Phoenicians. Yep, and there's um, one more prophecy of Hosea that I think uh, is really important. It's 2 verse 7. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better than me, better with me than now. And that is obviously the Israelites falling into paganism, you know, uh, being influenced by all these surrounding civilizations. And then who who's the husband? It was Yahweh. That was the the marriage, um, you know, on Mount Sinai, where they swore to for themselves and their offspring to marry to Yahweh. So the husband has to be Yahweh. And since Christ is Yahweh, he has to be the husband. And since they're returning back to Yahweh, that has to be Christianity. It has to be lost tribes returning back instead of the old, pet, old 
you know, Old Testament laws, but to Christianity. So it has to be the same people that the Christians have to be the people of the Bible. It's the only way that makes sense, right? Well, well right, absolutely. If, if you go to um, First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and read and understand the history of ancient Israel, then you'll find that the Israelites were worshiping Baal instead of Yahweh. And the Phoenicians, as they settled in their new homes where they made colonies in Carthage and in Iberia and in Gaul and in Britain and Ireland, who did they worship? Bell. Don't tell me that Bell is not Baal. Don't tell me that. Baal. They took Baal to the West and, and they worshiped Bell. So... And, and there are many other um, correlations and proofs that we can, what we can present which connect the Phoenicians of, of ancient northern Israel to the people of Britain, Ireland, and, and France, and, and Iberia. That there are many archaeological proofs, in fact. But the basic outline that I just presented should be enough to make people think that those connections are real. So you have these, um, these people in the West worshiping Bel. They were Israelites who were worshiping Baal. You have the Romans. In, in chapter 1 of his epistle to the Romans, Paul said that they had the truth of God and turned it into a lie and started worshiping beasts and creatures and the, the creations of man, which the Romans did in, in adopting the, the paganism of, of, of the Greeks, and, and they also worshipped men or, or fallen angels as they had adopted their own version of all the Greek pagan gods. Well, the high god of the Romans was Jove. And it could be established, and I have in various papers at Christogenia, it could be established that Jupiter is a contraction which means Jove, father. That's what it means. That's the etymology of the word Jupiter. Jove, father, or father Jove. So Jove in Latin wouldn't be pronounced Jove, J-O-V-E. The way we pronounce it is purely an English pronunciation. Jove in Latin would be pronounced Yahweh or Yahweh. Yahweh is Yahweh, the Yahweh of the Hebrews. The, 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 the identical composition of the, of, of the spelling and pronunciation. If you read Flavius Josephus, he says that the Hebrew name for God in Greek is spelled with four vowels. And those four vowels are the Jove of the Latins, I-O-U-E. That's four vowels. So no matter how you want to pronounce that, Yahweh, Yahweh, it's the same. So we have these religious connections. And, and the Romans took the truth of Yahweh and paganized it. And that's very clear in Roman history that they did that. And they added all the Greek pantheon to it under their own names for the Greek gods. And, and then they added all the beasts of Egypt to it because they started... Um, importing all of the 
religions of the lands that they conquered into Rome. They started bringing those religions into Rome and incorporating them into their own religion, Mithraism and, and all sorts of things. That, that's what every empire does, is it tries to be um, ecumenical and please all of its subjects and adopts all the religions. They're all valid, just like today in, in Britain or America. All the religions of the world, world are considered valid and equal. The Romans did the same thing 2,000 years ago. Yeah, they make documentaries of, was it Jesus with Mohammed? And uh, I don't even know all the other characters, <laughs> but they make documentaries where they're all equal and all the same, right? All these other uh, made up characters of the other religions. Every empire does that. Every empire has, has done that. Empires have to control the religions of all the people in order to control the people. So they, they basically... Um, force those religions to conform to them. There's different methods throughout time, but that's what's going on in, in the world of today. Yes, that's what's been going on for over 100 years now or longer. They forced, they perverted and corrupted Christianity in, into just another world religion and put them all on equal footing so that they could control all people. I'm sorry, and, where um, are we? Just, just one more thing. Uh, Christianity did, um, in, in to a degree. I mean, it's still got to be fulfilled, but it did unite all the lost tribes kind of together, right? We're all, we all have that common ground, or at least we did, that we're all Christian brothers. I, I know that there were still wars and that, and, and there was always Satan, the Jew, behind the scene manipulating us, but but it did make us one race of people again. Right. And, and now I'm going to get back on the topic originally, because I had to have that digression to show. I wanted to show that 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 the um, the scattered Israelites were pagans, that they were never. And, and the histories of Kings and Chronicles proves that. So when you look at when you look for Israelites in ancient history that are not in Palestine, but in, in the places that they went to, you can't look for Jews or even Hebrews, because they were pagans. So likewise, the Israelites that were taken into Assyrian captivity, they were pagans. If you read Kings and Chronicles, they were already pagans. But the ancient people of Israel, and this is to refer to your prophecy in Hosea chapter 2 to explain that. The ancient people of Israel as a nation were considered the wife of Yahweh God. They were his bride, his wife. So when Christ came, it was announced that he was the bridesmaid. The, I'm sorry, the bridegroom. Christ was the bridegroom. And Christ referred to his people in the gospel as the bridesmaid, as the bride. He referred to them as the bride. And he was referred to as the bridegroom. And that was by John the Baptist and by himself. So when Christ came as the bridegroom, he is fulfilling the promise of Yahweh God in Hosea to betroth Israel to himself once again, because Israel and Judah were divorced by God in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were divorced and they were put away into captivity. So Christ comes and announces, and John the Baptist announces that Christ is the bridegroom.
Christ announces that he is the bridegroom. In the Revelation, he states that he is the bridegroom. And all of that, and Paul of Tarsus also discusses it in Romans chapter 7, all of that is an indication of that fulfillment in Hosea chapter 2, that Christians were to be, and they were to be exclusively, as we hope to get to a little later on this evening, they were to be exclusively of the ancient children of Israel. That's who Christ came for. And he was betrothing himself anew to those people, as it was promised in Hosea chapter 2. And that leads to answer your last question, which is how um, Israelites should look at themselves, how Christians should look at themselves. And all white Christians are brethren, because they all, if they're white Christians, they all came from those in whole or in part, because there might be some other um, white Genesis 10 blood in some of us, at least, because the Germanic tribes and the other tribes, when they came into Europe, had mixed to some degree with the Ionian Greeks and, and the other white inhabitants of Europe, which is fine. That's fine. So all of us primarily descended from these Israelite tribes that were dominant in Europe by the time of Christ and remained dominant. So we are basically all brethren. All white Europeans have the same um, basic origin from the children of Israel or from the Genesis 10 nations, the white nations in, listed in Genesis 10 that were um, also descended from the same three sons of Noah that the children of Israel descended from. So we should all look at each other as white brethren, as, as fellow Christians, and we only have one legitimate ruler, and that is Christ. And in the end, that's the way it's going to be, whether we like it or not. <laughs> yeah, it will be his way, essentially, in the end. And and all this, everything that's went on has been a journey to prove that, right? That or, um, all ancient history is just to prove that the only legitimate ruler is Christ. Well, absolutely. If you read the words of the prophets, right? Yet you have these pagan Israelites. And, these pay, and I'm including Judah when I say that, right? You have these pagan Israelites in the... Um, land of Palestine, and and they're going to be told, and that's our next topic, that they're going to have a new land, that they're not staying there forever. And they're also told that they would return to God, that he would come and they would return to him. And they were told that explicitly very often in the prophets. And returning to God doesn't necessarily mean that they're all going to pick up and move back to Palestine. That's not what it means when, when Yahweh God says, return to me, he's speaking about returning to him. He's not speaking about returning physically to Jerusalem. So they did return to him. They returned to him in Christ. That fulfilled those demands of, of Yahweh God that his people return to him. They did return to him when they became Christians in Europe. 
Yeah, and he said he would come down himself and he would find them, and that was with the spread of Christianity, right? He sent the apostles out. Right, absolutely. Because the ancient shepherds, the Levites, did not seek his people after they were deported. He said that he would come, and this is in, I believe it's in Jeremiah principally, he said that he would come and find his sheep. And that's what he did through his apostles. He came and, and recollected his sheep. And the apostles understood that, as we just read from the words of Peter in his first epistle. Now, it took Peter 30 years to understand that. But he did ultimately understand it. It's about 30 years before, between the time of, of the, the um, resurrection and the time when Peter wrote that epistle. It's probably even a little longer than 30 years, but it's at least 30 years. All right. So next one, that the new home would be to the northwest of Palestine. They wouldn't return and stay there. There wouldn't be a massive... Uh, you know, they, there's so much lies now that they snuck into Africa or something like that, or they went to China or, or they fled to America. It very clearly says, you know, there's Bible verses that they would go north, that they would head north. And what's north of Palestine? Well, Europe. So who, who are the Israelites, Bill? <laughs> well, well, right. As we said last week that Jeremiah was... Um was told in Jerusalem to look towards the north and make pronouncements to the people of Yahweh, to the people of God, right? To look towards the north. He wasn't told to look towards the south or the east or the west at that time. He was told to look towards the north because in, in the context of Jeremiah, it's referring to the Israelites of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, and that's where they were. They were in the north. Now, if you look at Babylon itself, Babylon is not west. Babylon is not north of Jerusalem. Babylon is west. It's almost exactly west of Jerusalem, or, or slightly northwest, perhaps. But Jeremiah was told to look towards the north and, and make these pronouncements to the children of Israel. And he's told that at an early period in his, in his ministry, right in Jeremiah chapter 1, which is actually just before the Babylonian captivity had occurred. So it's referring to the children of Israel. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north. So there we have a strong indication that the children of Israel would eventually form kingdoms in the north. And they did, but they weren't known as Israelites. They were called Scythians or Galatahi, which is Galatians, by the Greeks and the Romans. Saka, by the Greeks and the Persians. Chimerians, by the Greeks and the Assyrians. They had different names until they ultimately became known as Christians. They had many different names. So we isn't see there several verses in the book of Ezra? I believe it was the one that was removed that the Scythians 
decided to get away from the other tribes and races and to start obeying Yahweh's commandments again and head north. And that country was called Azeroth, which in Hebrew means another land. And that's just above the sea, right? Is it the, the Black Sea? Um, yes, it's no, it's west of the Black Sea, and, and that can be established. Let me say first that there's a book, a, a prophetic book known as Second Esdras, which is attributed to Ezra, but which is considered apocryphal, meaning that it scholars. Christian Bible scholars doubt that it is legitimate. They question its authenticity as being with Ezra himself. And therefore, um, it's not considered part of canon. It, it's not considered a Bible book. It's a prophetic book that's considered apocryphal. And I would like to say that Second Esdras is not one book. And in medieval copies that have been found in various languages, because no Hebrew or Greek copy of it has been located ever, it survived in um, Slavonic and perhaps other languages. I, I don't remember clearly. Well, well, not all of it is in any one of those languages or in all the languages in which it was found, it was obviously, I believe, Latin pieces of it had been found, of Second Esdras, and Slavonic or Armenian. I, my memory is a little foggy in this area. I, I didn't expect to discuss this today, or I would have looked. I'm sure, though, that I've explained it elsewhere on Christogenia, because I have spoken of Second Esdras elsewhere on Christogenia in my papers at Christogenia. And Second Esdras is actually considered to be at least three different books which were sewn together, which were put together by scribes at one point or another. So there's a Second Esdras, a Third Esdras, and a Fourth Esdras. And the portion of Scripture of Esdras which you cite I believe it actually comes from four Esdras. And I don't I don't think there are portions of Esdras that I have to reject because they are fantastic and they are actually in conflict with canonical scriptures. So I don't accept them. But there are portions of Esdras that I can accept, and this is actually one of them. And I'm going to read the passage from for Esdras chapter 13, it says, And whereas thou sawest that he gathered another peaceable multitude unto him. And, and this is a prophecy of Christ. Those are the ten tribes. And it really includes most of Judah also, because most of Judah also went into Assyrian captivity. But they were always called the ten tribes and never the twelve because Judah and Benjamin were represented in Palestine by the people of Jerusalem that were left behind by the Assyrians. So that's a false distinction, but it just became a distinction. 
And Josephus didn't call them 10 tribes. He called them nine and a half tribes. So we see it's a distinction of men. Well, Esdras says, Esdras said, those are the 10 tribes, which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hosea the king, whom Salmanasar, the king of Assyria, led captive away, led away captive. And he carried them over the waters, meaning over the, the river Euphrates and, and the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And so they came into another land. But they took this counsel among themselves that they would lead the multitude of the heathen, which are the other Adamic nations, the, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Medes, and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwelt. Now, in Herodotus, 450 BC, Herodotus, if Ezra really wrote this, let's assume Ezra really wrote this. In my chronologies, I date Ezra and his return to Jerusalem at 458 BC. And if you understand Herodotus, he wrote around 450 BC, around the same time. And Herodotus had said that north of the Danube River was uninhabited except for a colony of men who said they came from the, from the Medes. So there were men above the Danube that said that they came from the Medes. The children of Israel were settled in the cities of the Medes when the Assyrians took them into captivity and along the rivers that bordered the, the land of the ancient Medes. So here we have a, a serious connection there because Esdras said that that land had been uninhabited before that time. And the Greeks couldn't imagine it being inhabited because north of the Danube, it got so cold in the winter, as we had already discussed. So, they would go forth into a further country, and I'm still quoting from 2nd Esdras, where never mankind dwelt, that they might there keep their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. That's a matter of prophecy. That's a matter of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And they entered into Euphrates by the narrow places on the river. For the Most High then showed signs for them and held still the flood, meaning held still the river, till they were passed over. For through that country there was a great way to go, namely of a year and a half. They had to go around the Black Sea and down the Danube River. And the same region is called Arsareth. Arsareth was... This in, in that there's a place on the Hungarian plain which it could be established was one of the earliest homes of the Chimerians in Europe, where a river called the Suret River flows. It's called the Suret River, it borders between Hungary and Romania, and it's called the Suret River to this day. And our Suret is Hebrew. It's a Hebrew term. Ar means mountains. And Sereth is the name of this river. Mountains of Sereth. That's what Ezra seems to be identifying. And that river has its sources in the Ukraine. And it empties into the Black Sea from the northwest. Right, right near the Crimea. And that's where the Chimerians were. So... 
whatever the provenance of this this second Esdras chapter 13, what which is also considered four Esdras by scholars, whatever the provenance of this book is, it's identifying the Cimmerians on the, the hung, plains of Hungary with the ancient children of Israel. And we know, as we already spoke, from ancient history and from inscriptions, that the Cimmerians were indeed the children of Israel, and that this was one of the first places they inhabited. Right, and then um, if you jump a little bit ahead in time, when we start to see the Saxons, uh, the Angles, Saxons, Danes, they had all these legends of a place called Asgard, right? which is the same region, and they had uh, kings who came from there and settled up north in, uh, you know, what we now know as Germany. And and this is obviously the Lost Tribes. It's the same myths. Uh, and I read somewhere, I'm, I can't remember, but they said that some of the kings of Judah started to rename themselves Odin, and, and that's where the name comes from. And because that king came into what we call Germany and he brought his sons with them and he started making his sons kings of each different nation. He went into, you know, a different tribe, made a deal and just said, will you make my son the king? And then those kings eventually had sons and then sons and they all started, you know, conquering places. This this king called Odin became legendary. But it's all tied back to what we just said, Asherah. That that's where he originated from. So you can connect all the myths, right? Well, well, right. But it, it's um, okay. Asgard is a legendary city of the Eddas of, of the Germanic poets, which is usually identified with Kiev in the Ukraine, which would be right near this first home of the Cimmerians in Europe, according to Forrester's, right? And and according to Homer, that's where the the the, the Kimmeroy of Homer had dwelt. So, the the okay, the word Odin is exactly similar to the word Adon. Is another l- word in Hebrew which means Lord, and it's Adon. And I believe that Odin is simply a, a slight corruption or variation of Adon. And, and we really don't know how Adon was pronounced, right? Because when we pronounce these um, Hebrew terms, we're basically following the, the Jews who had made the Masoretic text, right? I mean, it, it's... The Jews who made the Nazaretic text aren't always, are, are certainly not always um, consistent in their pronunciations. We cannot take for granted that they were pronouncing Hebrew the same way that the most ancient Hebrews were pronouncing it. I, I would bet they're not, actually. So we see a a, a, a direct connection between Odin and its usage and the Hebrew term Adon and its usage. Now, Odin is said to have brought his sons and his people from Asa, A-S-A, from Asa. And 
I believe that scholars are correct where they identify that as or with Asia Minor or Roman Asia. Because even though Asia as a, um, as a province referred to only the southwesternmost portion of Anatolia originally, it ultimately became a term for all of what we know was as Asia Minor. So, and, and, and only later was the whole eastern part of the Asian continent known as Asia, right? Asia originally referred only to a portion of Anatolia, Anatolia and, and then later to, to the whole of Anatolia, where in the north and east of Anatolia, Scythian tribes had predominated for many centuries. And this is evident in all the way to Armenia and then up through the Caucasus Mountains and, and into Northern Europe. Well, well, Scythian tribes predominated in that portion of Asia. Um, Armenia, the portion immediately below Armenia and, and closer to Media was considered Sacasene by Strabo and by Diodorus Siculus. And, and that was named after the Saka, the Saka coming from Parthia. They were also considered Scythians, the Parthians, but it, it can be demonstrated that the Parthians are also from a portion of the children of Israel of the Assyrian captivities. And Sacasene, and, and along the bottom of the Black Sea was also inhabited by Scythians. And I believe a lot of scholars are correct when they identify the Asa of the legends of Odin as that portion of Asia Minor, which was inhabited by Scythians, and that they migrated up through to Ukraine, which is the land of the Cimmerians, and they would not have been distinguished from Cimmerians because they were every bit as um, Cimmerian as the Cimmerians were, and they migrated into Scandinavia. And, and all of the, if you read the Saxon Chronicles, as they're presented by Sharon Turner in his History of the Anglo-Saxons, all of the kings of, of, um, of Saxon England, of Sweden and, and Denmark and Norway, they all counted themselves as ex-generations from Odin. Because legend has it that Odin divided the kingdom that he founded among several of his sons, and these sons became the nobility of, of Germanic Europe. All of the early medieval kings of Germanic Europe had counted themselves in the number of generations that they were born from Odin throughout the Saxon Chronicles. Yeah, yeah. So, so sorry, what I meant to say was um, he took the name Odin. Um, it is possible, right, that he started calling himself calling himself Adon the Lord. And, yeah, right. And that name I, I became believe that. incredibly famous. I believe that. And and throughout medieval England, kings were called Lord. Yeah. And Adon is the Hebrew equivalent, and I believe that Odin came from that. It was a title. It wasn't a personal name. Yeah. So maybe I'm elaborating a little too much. It, <laughs> no, in, um, that's no problem. In Israel's new home, we're on point six, Israel's new home 
to be northwest of Palestine. This might be as far as we get this this evening. I, I have a few um, scriptures to cite in reference to that. Um, first, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. And Samuel is standing in Jerusalem talking to David, right? But when this is going on, he's standing in Judah talking to David. And, and he gives the word of God in a prophecy to David, and he says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, because Palestine, that they had taken it from the Canaanites, but it was never properly a place of their own. Even though they were supposed to establish it as their own, they never killed all the Canaanites like they were supposed to do. So it was never really a place of their own because they failed to do that. And they may, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. Because in this new place, you wouldn't have any Canaanites. So right there, if we see 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, you cannot think that Israel in Palestine is the land is the only land which Yahweh God had given to the fathers. Because right here, he's telling them that he's giving them a new place, that it's not going to be in Palestine. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again from the, for the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. The people that are going to be left from those places, not the people that are going to be in those places. So all those places, the children of Israel had passed through to get to the places where they would eventually live. They passed through Assyria. They passed through Egypt. When you see Assyria and Egypt referenced in the books of the prophets, it's not referring physically to Assyria and Egypt. It's referring to Israelites who were in the captivity in Egypt and Israelites who were in the captivity in Assyria. That's what it's referring to. And from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam, which is Persia, the Parthians in Persia, a lot of the people were in captivity in Persia, and from Shinar, which is Babylonia, Shinar is just another word. It's a more ancient word for Babylonia. And from Hamath, which is northern Syria, all those places the children of Israel passed through and from the islands of the sea. They passed through them to get to Europe. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 14. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistine towards the west. Isaiah 41, verse 1. Isaiah is addressing the children of Israel in their captivity. Keep silence before me, O islands. And that word can be interpreted as coastlands. And we see that the Scythians had, had been at that time on the coasts of the Black and Caspian Seas and all around the Crimea and all around the, the Aegean Sea and, and the, the coast of modern Europe. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. So Yahweh knew that they were in the coastlands and islands of the north and the west.
because that's where they were. That's what Isaiah is addressing them. And then we see in Hosea chapter 11, verse 10, of the people of Israel in the future, they shall walk after the Lord. He shall roar like a lion. When he shall roar, then the children shall tremble from the west. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt, not in Egypt, but out of Egypt because there are children of Israel that settled in Europe from the Egyptian captivity who were never in Palestine and as a dove out of the land of Assyria. And of course, those that refers to the people from the Assyrian captivity. They came from out of Egypt into Europe. They came from out of Assyria into Europe. And I will place them in their houses, saith the Lord. So all of these prophecies and many more do point to a future home for the children of Israel, which would be in the north and in the west. Right. And uh, as you said, if that place was uninhabitable around 450 BC, and then suddenly the climate uh, became more habitable just around that time, just as the Scythians, our ancestors, decided to migrate, you can see Yahweh's hand there, right? That he was keeping that land preserved for his people when the time came. Absolutely. It, it's it, If you read, and, and Paul actually makes an allusion to to um to this very past that this very passage in Acts chapter 17 and we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 8 that when the most high divided to the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of Adam and that refers to the separation of the children of Adam in Genesis chapter 11 which we see the children of Adam enumerated in Genesis chapter 10, all the nations of the Adamic people, even the cursed Canaanites, because they were Adamic originally, what we see them listed in Genesis chapter 10 and separated in Genesis chapter 11. So in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, it's referring to that separation. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people, according to the number of the children of Israel. Well, they didn't even exist yet when the sons of Adam were separated. But if you look at where all of those Genesis 10 nations are found in history, while they inhabit the, the coasts to the south of the Black Sea and the Caspian Seas, to the south and to the east of those seas, and they inhabit areas of the coasts and islands in the Mediterranean and in Southern Europe, there are no Germans. There are no um, Franks. There are no people in those regions. There are no people assigned portions of the British Isles or anywhere in Northern Europe, anywhere. Now, some Jepethites and Shemites and perhaps even some people of Ham, because they had inhabited a great portion of Anatolia and Mesopotamia historically, in early history. Perhaps some of those tribes migrated into Northern Europe and left behind artifacts at various times. And the Ionians, that they had established colonies around the Black Sea, um, probably from the ninth century BC, 
and along the Danube River. They were mining for salt along the Danube River and, and at a very early time. So while some of these other Genesis 10 nations did wander into Europe and leave behind artifacts at diverse times, none of them really created any lasting civilization in Northern Europe until the deportations of the children of Israel. Now, there are geological events which I believe coincided with the migration of the Germanic tribes into Northern Europe. I believe that there must have been a warming period in order to facilitate that, as we have seen cooling and warming periods throughout more recent history over the last 2,000 years, identifiable cooling and warming periods in Northern Europe. So I believe there must have been a warming period which actually facilitated the migrations of the Germanic tribes, the children of Israel of the Assyrian captivity into Northern Europe. But that land was empty. And there we see the truth of Deuteronomy 32.8, because the land of Canaan was not uninhabited when the children of Israel were told to conquer it. But Yahweh must have known ahead of time that the land of Canaan would not be their permanent home, as we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, which I just read. And um, just one more thing with the whole uh, Odin legend. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of the the great war that was supposed to happen between the Asir and the Vanir. Uh, do you believe that could have been the the early Scythians or Chimerians, the Asir, and then later was it the Masagei? You know, another portion of the Scythians came in. They had a war, and then eventually they settled. Do you believe that's linked to that legend? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's that that's very possible because there are um, the Scythians of Lake Van, I believe it was called. That there were other competing groups of Scythians that they did not get along. And the, the legend could be about competition between the Scythians of Lake Van or the Vanir and the Scythians of Asa or the Aesir and different competing groups of Scythians in Anatolia at an early time. And that's how I understand, I personally understand that myth. Can I prove it? Probably not. But once you understand that you had Scythians around Lake Van, who may have been called Vanir, and Scythians of Asa, who were called Aesir, well, well, then it becomes apparent. But I don't think it could be proven. Yeah. But it's interesting, all these myths relating back to the Scythian tribes and the kings of Judah, right? Well, well right. Uh, ultimately, yes. That the, um, yeah, you know, the, the, the various, the, the Scythians, the Germanic people were never united. That they were always in competition with one another. And that, that's clear throughout the, the earliest history of our race that that happened. I, I mean, if you read Procopius and the earliest um, Greek authorities, the Huns were actually the Masagetae, and the Goths also came from the Masagetae. 
But the Goths, and, and they migrated out of the um, Oxus and, and Jakartus River valleys where they had settled after they departed fr from the cities of the Medes, where, where many of them had settled in, in large numbers and migrated west later in history than the Cimmerians, even though, and the Saka, even though they were all the same people. So by the time they migrated west, they were known as Massagete and Goths and Huns. But Huns and Goths are both identified as Massagete in some of the earliest histories we have. And they were always in competition with each other. And the, the, the Goths hated the Huns. Where because does the, the name Huns, Huns come from? Do you know? Um, well, the Huns are just another branch of the same Scythians, of the same people. As far oh, as I was I'm just concerned. wondering the name. I've never quite identified where that name comes from, Huns. It, it developed... It like a pejorative? Yes, I believe so. And it developed early in the Christian era and, and was used of the Scythians who had migrated in from Central Europe into the Hungarian plains in the, um, they became known as Hungarian plains, right? Long after the, the, the Cimmerians, probably in the second and third centuries AD, and they began to invade Rome by the late third and early fourth centuries AD, I believe. They began to invade the Romans and they were called Huns or Cunes by the Greeks. But Procopius was very learned, and he identifies them as the same people as the Massagetae. And, and the Massagetae were written about earlier by Strabo, Diodorus Siculus, but Strabo and Diodorus did not know that name. It seems to have been developed in the second and third centuries AD. And probably is a pejorative of one sort or another, because they were despised by the Romans. They were a constant threat to the Roman Empire. And they were all horse archers, which is the same as the Scythians and Parthians. Right. right. I and, mean, that same tactic of, um, you know, running in and they could shoot behind that they, they didn't have like heavy cavalry. It was all you can clearly see that they're related even just by their military tactics. Right. And I trust Procopius because he knew them firsthand. Procopius, the historian, he was a historian, a Greek historian. He was probably, I would consider Procopius to be the last classical historian, the last real Greek historian. And, and that's, he, he was a general. He, he was, Belisarius was a general in the army of Justinian from around 530 AD. Belisarius was the most notable general of the army of Justinian, and Procopius was a member of Justinian's court, and he was the secretary to Belisarius. He traveled with Belisarius in all of the wars that he conducted in Persia and in North Africa and in Italy. Procopius was there observing that the things from the general's perspective and he described the huns as being tall and fair and excellent fighters on horseback the huns that were hired as mercenaries by the byzantines 
to employ in Persia and in North Africa. And there were large numbers of them. So the, they're not the savage barbarians that the Romans made them out to be. And, and I know that there are very unflattering descriptions of the Huns by Ammonius, which I believe Jordanus followed. Jordanus was a Gothic historian of the 7th century. He followed those unflattering descriptions. And in my opinion, that was only because of the hatred that the Goths had towards the Huns, because the Huns at one time ruled over all the Goths in, in Europe. So the, the, um, even the Franks, if you read the Nibelungen lead, even the Franks paid homage to Attila the Hun. So the, the Jordanus had a hatred for the Huns, but there's another description of the Huns by Priscus, another Roman writer, that's basically flattering, that's totally the opposite of what you read in Ammonius. I think Ammonius, the Roman, was just full of shit. I think he was just lying. He made this um, description that made Attila the Hun basically look like a Chinese Yoda, a, a little Chinese imp. So I, I don't believe it at all. And Procopius indirectly refutes it. And, and Procopius describes a, a, a picture of the Huns that makes them look every bit like tall, fair, white warriors which is what they were. And they yeah, also exactly. came. And if you watch any modern documentary, just like the, the Persians, as, as we said last episode, uh, the Persians, um, Babylon, that they try to make it as though there were, that these were Asians, that they always try and distort the truth and remove the whiteness. Well, well right, absolutely, because they want us to believe that we're all mixed. That these Jews that run Hollywood and, and that are behind all these academic institutions, they want us to believe that we're all mixed. And it's certainly not true. Yeah. Whites are suckers for it every time. But the Roman description of the Huns was just propaganda. And Jordanus had every reason to hate the Huns because he was a goth, and the goths hated the Huns. <laughs> Just like the English hated the Germans in, in, in the 20th century. So what did they call them? They called them Huns. <laughs> but they weren't Huns. They were every bit as Anglo and Saxon as the English. Yeah, exactly. So it's our people have always been our own worst enemies and, and destructors of our own race with all the infighting that we see in the Bible that would be promised as part of our punishment all right um what did well, you want did you want to go on to seven or do you want to leave it for next week well we're already over two hours so <laughs> okay what we covered another three points we're making great progress <laughs> i'm sorry there's so much material here that can be considered and in in connection with these 100 proofs right so next week we'll start with um, the meaning of the term Adam. If we yeah. try it now, we'll just shortchange it. It won't be. It yeah, won't that's be right. true. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. No problem. Great to be here. Uh, thanks, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the European race. Thank you. Absolutely. Praise Yahweh. <laughs>